The following is a podcast from Livid, a ministry of St. Marcus. For more information or for message notes, go to www.livitmke.org. In the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or our own godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, which we just read about a minute ago, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer named Barabbas be released to you in his place. You killed the author of life, he calls him. But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets. In other words, this is, this is the guy he's been talking about throughout the entire Old Testament scriptures. Saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of, may refresh, of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him right now until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Again, with the holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything that he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you, by turning each of you from your wicked ways. This is God's word. Tonight, uh, as we look at the way that God clearly reveals himself to us, uh, particularly in the person of Jesus, the way for us to best know God, um, we're not going to spend so much time on who Jesus is in the sense that he's true God and true man. I'm going to operate with the assumption tonight that everybody in this room is probably on board with that, at least to some extent. Where we are going to spend our time is we're going to ask, what, what roles does Jesus fill? What does Jesus do for us? What, uh, in scripture and theology, we call these offices, the offices of Christ. See, getting to know Christ a little bit better is, is, is how you grow in Christ. And one of the main ways that Christians grow in Christ is they start to see him in everything, starting with scripture. You need to see Jesus is the author of life. He is the everything of life. You need to see him in everything. So for instance, here's what I mean. At the end of John's gospel, he says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now John wouldn't have to say that if he didn't think some people were going to miss that. In other words, it's possible for some people to read through the Bible or read through John's gospel and say, this is a book that teaches me about God in general 
or this is a book that teaches me about a good, uh, civil, a good guy and a civil leader in Jesus, or this is a book that teaches me how to be a more moral person. Somebody could walk away with that impression, so John goes out of his way to say, uh-uh, that's not what it's primarily about. All those things are in there, but it's about, it was written so that you might believe Jesus is the Christ and receive eternal life in his name. Uh, earlier in John's gospel, in John 5, Jesus is speaking to the Jewish leaders and he says, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that in them you possess eternal life. These are scriptures that testify about me. Now the scriptures he was talking about were the Old Testament scriptures. It's possible for somebody to read through those scriptures and think maybe this is just to teach me about God in general or maybe this is to teach me about how to be a good person and Jesus says, uh-uh. Those scriptures, all the Old Testament is ultimately about me. Everything's about me. In fact, I think I could even take this one step further. I think any uh, compelling character that you've ever encountered in history, whether in TV show or film or book or musical or play or whatever else, think about your favorite characters. Why do you like those characters? I guarantee it's because they possess some kind of character trait that overlaps with something that Jesus himself has as a character trait. They're humble, they're generous, they're courageous, they're something like that. What's the point? The point is Jesus is the center, certainly of the Bible, Jesus is the center of absolutely everything. And tonight we're going to describe that. We're going to show you how he's the center of, um, and, and the, the goal of all of Scripture by looking at the three big offices of the Old Testament and seeing how they find their fulfillment in Jesus. Okay? So the, the main characters of the Bible in the Old Testament tend to fall, generally speaking, into one of three categories, which is how we're going to break the message up here tonight. They fall into the category of prophet, king, and priest. And I'm going to show you how Jesus is the last and the greatest prophet, king, and priest. Okay? First of all, he's the last and greatest prophet. Why? Because he only speaks truth, which is what prophets do. Uh, let me read again from verses 22 and 23. It says, Moses said, now Moses lives 1,500 years before Jesus, okay? 1,500 years before Jesus, Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything that he tells you. Anyone who doesn't listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Speaking of Moses, uh, there's actually a time in the Gospels where we see Moses, it's on the Mount of Transfiguration. And you remember what that was? Jesus takes some of his closest disciples up onto a mountain and he, he's transfigured. He shows them all of his divine glory. And at that moment, God the Father speaks from heaven. Do you remember what he says? This is my son whom I love. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, this is my son whom I love. You should love him too. That would make sense. That is what people should do, but that's not what God the Father says. He only speaks a couple times in the New Testament. It's, it's really important that you pay attention to it. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Well, why do I got to listen to him? Because he's a bringer of truth. He's the only perfect bringer of truth. He's the last and greatest prophet, and the truth that he brings is absolutely essential for your life. Now, our world 
the, the vast majority of people do not want to listen to Jesus as a prophet. In fact, increasingly, percentage-wise in our country, people do not want to listen to Jesus as a prophet. And let's take it even more personal. There's a little part inside of you, it's called a sinful nature, that really doesn't want to listen to Jesus as a prophet either. Um, why? I do a number of uh, talks to uh, people about ministering to young adults. And um, so it's done a lot, of, I've been a lot, doing a lot of research over the years on what, how do young adults perceive truth and how do young adults perceive God. And there's really no way to understand it unless you go back a couple generations. In the 20th century, there was two predominant views on truth and God. I'm going to oversimplify it here and just call it the Western view and the Eastern view. So we're going to divide the earth in half and say the Western worldview and the Eastern worldview. The Western worldview, by and large, in the 20th century said that uh, the way to know things progressively, increasingly, is through science. Uh, the, the way to understand the world is through science, the macroevolutionary process, and increasing uh, technology. The way, the, the way you can discern any sort of truth is by those kinds of means. It was a nat it's called naturalism or materialism is the worldview. The guy who probably best summarizes this is one of the more influential philosophers of the 20th century. His name is Bertrand Russell. And in a famous statement, he said, mankind is simply the product of an accidental collocation of atoms. We come about accidentally through random chance processes. He goes on to say, all human genius is destined to extinction in the death of the solar system only within the scaffolding of these truths, uh, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation be safely built. Now, here's what he's saying. It's kind of complicated and it's kind of cold and bleak. But what he's saying is, all we are is, is atoms. All we are is stardust. You know, there is no truth, there is no God, there is no right, and there is no wrong. All we are is atoms, and the only reality is what we can experience through our senses. So the goal of life then is simply to delight your senses. And that was the kind of thought from which birthed things in the 20th century like um, the sexual revolution of the 60s and uh, American consumerism and Mar American materialism and American pragmatism and sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Why? Because if we're just sensory experiences, why not just delight your senses? That was the perception of truth in God in the Western world in the 20th century. The Eastern worldview was a little different. It didn't say there is no God and there is no truth. It said there is God and there is truth, but he dwells, it dwells within you. You know, it's, it's in a sense everywhere, but the only way to truly know truth and to know God is to get in touch more deeply with yourself, get in touch with who you are and your own personal feelings, and then you arrive at a heightened form of consciousness. Now, interestingly, uh, young adults in the 21st century tend to be kind of an interesting hybrid of those two views so that young adults, in order to perceive truth in God, they tend to rely heavily on both expert opinions and their own personal feelings and experiences. But I want to back up for just a second. Those two seemingly competing worldviews, there is no God, there is no truth, there is God and there is truth, but he's inside of you. They sound like they're at odds with one another. They sound like they're competing worldviews. They're not. There's one very important point of commonality between the two. Both of them are suggesting there is nothing and no one outside of you that you have to be obedient to. 
Okay? There's, there, there's nothing that you in life have to submit yourself to. Nobody else's words that you have to submit yourself to. In other words, you are your own prophet. You have to determine what's right for you. You don't have to listen to anybody. You understand how completely different that is from what Peter's telling us here tonight? It's essentially, by the way, this is no different from, this is like uh, 101 Garden of Eden level stuff. You either listen to God or you listen to whatever you want to do. But Peter says uh, here in the sermon, you must listen to everything Jesus tells you. Anybody who doesn't listen to Jesus will be cut off. Paul even kind of says something pretty uh, provocative in Galatians. He says, I don't care if an angel from heaven comes down to earth and you have this incredible, magnificent experience of, of what, uh, this transcendent experience. If that angel tweaks the gospel just a little bit, you kick that angel to the curb. You have nothing to do with him. Why? Because Jesus is the last and the greatest prophet. Jesus is the final word. Jesus is the only one you have to listen to. He's outside of you, but it's very clear. He's the only one. What was a prophet in the Old Testament? A prophet was somebody who proclaimed the truth that God had already revealed, and a prophet was somebody when God gave them a special message of revelation that told about the future, they also announced that to the people. In other words, the the most important work of the prophets was to tell about the coming Messiah. The Old Testament prophets basically said, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Jesus shows up in the New Testament and he says, I'm here. He's the last prophet. He's the final word. He's the only one we have to listen to. He says, listen to me. Jesus is the last and the greatest king also. Uh, Why? Because he is truth. He's not just a prophet that brings truth. He's a king that that is truth. He's the governing truth and the governing reality of all of the universe. Um, I'll get to those passages here in just a second, but truth in the Bible is a fascinating concept too. Um, One of the places that talks about truth is, is it, it actually refers to truth more in the sense of word. Uh, Some of you might be familiar with the beginning of John's gospel. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, the translators have to do something with that word translated as word. They have to put something in their Bibles there in order to sell the Bibles. But no one word actually captures it, and when they say word, they're not talking about like letters on a piece of paper. The word that they're using there, I could almost translate it as simply as truth. It's the Greek word logos, which was a philosophical term. The first time we have it listed for us in recorded history is in the 6th century BC by a philosopher named Heraclitus. And it's picked up by a group of philosophers called the Stoics. And the Stoics define the word logos as the divine animating principle of the entire universe. In other words, the logos was the meaning of life. The Logos was the purpose of life. It was the it of the universe. It was the fundamental operating principle that governed and ruled over everything in the universe. So you got to understand that when John comes along in 100 AD and he writes his gospel and he says, I'll tell you what, the secret of life, the meaning of life, it's not a thing to know and it's not a thing to do. It's a person to have a relationship with. 
that just completely blew the minds of people at that time. See, all the philosophers thought for hundreds and hundreds of years, the secret and the meaning of life, if we could just get that knowledge, if we could just do that one thing, then we would find joy and peace and energy and meaning and satisfaction in life. And, and John says, no, no, it's not a thing to do. It's not a thing to know. It's a person to have a relationship with because he's everything. He's the king of the cosmos. Peter says the exact same thing in our lesson, by the way. He says in verse 15, he is the author of life. You killed the author of life. He's the one who's over everything in the universe. He's the one who's transcended through everything in the universe. And furthermore, he also says he's in control of everything in this universe. Look at what he says in verse 12. You think it's by our own power that we cured that crippled man? No. This is a guy who has the power to bring life to dead limbs. That's the author of life. He's in control of everything, the king of the cosmos. So, what do the kings of the Old Testament do? They ruled things. They governed all things for the benefit of the people. They did one other thing. They fought battles on behalf of the people so that their victory would be credited to those people. How is Jesus the last and the greatest king? Well, he conquers our spiritual enemies, sin, Satan, and death, and now he sits on his throne and he rules all things for the benefit of us, his people, because he's king over everything. Lastly, Jesus is the last and greatest priest. Why? Because Jesus makes us beneficiaries of his truth. Uh, verse 19 says, Repent, turn to God so that your sins might be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. It says right here that Jesus had to suffer in order for your sins to be wiped away. Why? Why does he have to suffer? If he's God, why can't he just take away the sins? Have you ever thought of that? Like, if he's God, shouldn't he be able to do anything? Why can't he just, you know, dismiss the sins? God can't, there, be careful on that. There's certain things God says he can't do. He cannot tell a lie, for instance. Uh... God cannot dismiss sins any more than you can say, ah, don't worry about it to somebody who totals your car. And you can say, ah, don't worry about it to somebody who totals your car, but guess what? You're still out of car. Or you can say, ah, don't worry about it to somebody who totals your car, and you can buy yourself a new car so you have a car, but then you're out a ton of money. Or your only other option is you force the other person to pay to buy you a new car, but then you have not sent their sins away. You've made them pay for their transgressions. What's the point? The point is when somebody sins, they break the world, they break the universe in such a way that you can't just dismiss that. It can't just go away. The pieces need to be put back together. Now, the way that the Bible says Jesus does that is he becomes our great high priest. That's how he takes care of our sins. What does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, they had this sacrificial system where the believers daily made a bunch of sacrifices that were necessary for them to have their sins washed away. And they had, uh, you know, day after day, they, they would trot up these little uh, goats and lambs and bulls and things like that. And there was a ton of bloodshed. And uh, it was very messy and very gross and very, there would have been a visceral reaction to it. Um, what, that's intentional. As you hear this little animal screaming and crying out and you see this little animal with blood pouring out of it, it gives you a visceral reaction. Even today, if you see blood, generally speaking, something terrible has gone gone wrong. You know, uh, you're not supposed to see blood in life. Blood is supposed to remain on the insides. If it's on the outside, something bad has happened. 
God is reminding the Israelites, when you sin, when you violate my commandments, you're killing my planet, you're killing your relationships, you're killing your relationship with me. Interestingly, the Israelites were not allowed to make their own sacrifices. They had to bring their own sacrifices, but you notice, they didn't make any of their own sacrifices. Somebody had to go between them and God, a priest, a mediator, to reconcile them to God. God was teaching them something in that too. And there was one special mediator referred to as the high priest who had other special duties. And on one special day in the year, the most important day in the Jewish calendar was called Yom Kippur, the Jewish uh, Day of Atonement. On that day, the high priest would make special sacrifices and would bring the blood from those sacrifices into the most holy place. He only entered there once a year. Uh, the, the one spot in the temple where no one else was allowed to go and he took in the blood and he sprinkled it over what was called the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. That was the pl- place where God dwelled in a location. And in the Ark of the Covenant, if you remember, that housed the broken ca- commandments, the broken tablets of stone that Moses threw down when he came down Mount Sinai and saw the Israelites sinning. Very clearly what God was trying to communicate to his people at that time is it requires the innocent blood of an unblemished sacrifice to cover over all of your broken commandments. Furthermore, there was two special goats on that day, the Day of Atonement. One of the goats was slaughtered outside of the city and one of them, which is called the scapegoat, had uh, the hands were laid upon that goat's head and all of the iniquities of the Israelites were transferred to that goat. And then they would send it away and push it out of the town. And Jewish legend actually says that they would go and push it right off the cliff. Why? To indicate that God has pushed your sins away from you forever and they can't ever get you again. Well, what does this mean? These were not ends in and of themselves. They point to the last and the greatest high priest who wipes away our sins and brings time of refreshing. Why? Well, think about who Jesus is and what he did. He was innocent and he was unblemished. His blood covers over all of our broken commandments. He died bloody outside of the city gates of Jerusalem, just like that first goat. And he died with our iniquities laid upon his head so that God would send them away from us forever just like that second goat. Jesus is the last and the greatest high priest, not only because he made the sacrifice to take away the sins of the world, but because he loved us enough to actually become the sacrifice for us, which is why we call him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What does all this mean? My guess is that some of you at this point have connected enough dots where you're getting a couple points. You're getting the fact that I'm saying, okay, he's saying everything in the Bible And everything in life points to Jesus. So when I read through, for instance, my Old Testament, every time I read through a prophet, priest, or king, I should see how in some way, shape, or form, they're foreshadowing, prefiguring the coming work of the final prophet, priest, and king. Yes. Some of you are also connecting the dots and saying, okay, it seems as though if these are Jesus' roles, these are things that he has to do. He has to equally be each of these things in order to bring us salvation, which is also true. Uh, But, some of you are also wondering, does this have any practical value for my day-to-day life right now? In other words, it might be theologically true, and it might be uh, eternally beneficial, but does it have any day-to-day value for me right this instant? Yes. And I'll prove it to you. Um, I'm going to actually make a bold statement here. I'm going to say the vast majority of your life problems, maybe all of your life problems, are related to the fact 
that you and I fail to see Jesus as the ultimate prophet, priest, and king sometimes. Okay? All of our problems are related not to just problems, but are related to our low view of Jesus that we don't see Jesus as the prophet, priest, and king of our lives. Let me explain it. Okay? Um, first of all, why are you worried right now? You're worried about something. Most of you are worried about something. In fact, I want you to take five seconds and actually come up with something. The one thing in your life that you're worried about the most right now. Now take five more seconds and come up with a solution. What is the thing that you think would solve that problem? Five seconds. I don't think so. I don't know that your solution is going to work. Do you know without a shadow of a doubt that your prescribed solution to that problem is going to work? First of all, do you know what's going to work? Secondly, do you know that it's not going to create a different problem in your life? Or thirdly, do you know that if, you just, if your solution solves your problem, it's not going to transfer the problem over to somebody else? Can I offer you a better solution? If you actually believe that King Jesus is actually king of the cosmos who rules over everything for your good, you would not be worrying. You worry not because of bad circumstances in your life. You worry because you and I have too low of a view of King Jesus and don't always fully believe that he's in control of everything for our good. Let me give you another one. Uh, some of you are struggling in, let's say, aspects of your Christian obedience in life. You're struggling with certain pet sins or whatever else. And I don't think it's because you know, don't know what the Bible has to say on a given issue, what is right or wrong. I think you probably know what's right or wrong. But I think uh, sometimes we just want to do what we want to do anyways. Or at least we want to try that first before we do what God says. Why? Because we have a too low of a view of prophet Jesus. That everything he says is right and good and for our blessing. Um, at some point in the future, the Bible says every knee will bow down to Jesus and every single person will do exactly what Jesus says is right and good. We might as well embrace that idea now and trust that what he says is, is in our best interest at this moment. Uh, so why do we struggle with sins? We have a too low view of what Jesus teaches us. Uh, some of you right now are struggling with, you know, who am I in life and uh, this kind of identity crisis and I feel a little bit lost and I don't know who I am and I'm trying to please the world and I'm trying to please my boyfriend or girlfriend. I'm trying to please my parents. I'm trying to... Uh, what's the problem? You, don't, you haven't fully yet embraced the idea of high priest Jesus who has made you the most significant thing you will ever possibly be, which is a redeemed child of God through his very own blood. You're never going to top that. Why are you worried about trying? That's who you are. You, let me put this, state this again. Do you not see that every single anxiety issue, every single morality issue, and every single identity issue that you and I face in life is directly related to us having too low of a view and not seeing clearly that Jesus is the last and greatest, the ultimate king, prophet, and priest in our lives. So let me leave you with this thought. Uh, Peter says something very interesting when he cures the man who's uh, crippled. And it was right before our lesson for today. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. That's all he says. I love it. I love it because he, it's so clean and pure. All he does is state who the source of his power is. And then he says, don't think about this, just do this. The name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, just get up and walk. 
So that's for people who are physically crippled. For those of us who spiritually struggle with a little crippling in our lives, here's what I'd say. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Walk boldly past all of your fears. Walk humbly in his will, not your own. Walk proudly as his redeemed child. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, just get up and walk. Let's close with a prayer. Lord Jesus, we come to you tonight uh, acknowledging uh, that though we, we all see blessings in our lives, some of, every one of us sees problems in our lives. Every one of us has things that we would change. But most of us probably didn't walk in here tonight thinking that our biggest problem was failure to see who you are clearly. Uh, that's exactly it. Lord Jesus, you are the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And if we really believed that, if we fully believed that, all our fears would go away, uh, our struggles would, in many ways, our struggle with morality would go away, and our wondering who we are and being so insecure would go away. We don't need you to take away our problems. We need you to open our eyes and drop the scales from them so that we can get up and walk and walk by faith and see you clearly. Help do exactly that in our lives, Jesus. In your holy name we pray, amen.